in two weeks, a movie studio will release its 18th movie. And the previous 17 movies have had some pretty impressive statistics. Of the previous 17, 16 debuted number one at the box office for the weekend. Nine won an Academy Award. Now think about that as a movie studio. If one out of every two movies you produced won an Academy Award and 16 out of 17 opened number one at the box office. Anybody know what the movie studio is? It's Pixar. Now here's the thing. Pixar makes what kind of movies? Animated movies. Now somebody out there I heard say kids movies. If you ever watched a Pixar movie, you know that they are for kids, but they're also for adults. And they have introduced some of the most iconic characters of the last 20 years. In fact, Disney World believes these characters are so iconic, they've already built one land in one of their parks to them, and they're building another land in another park to them. But the characters like Lightning McQueen, a car that's racing from Cars 3 that will be introduced for the third time in two weeks. I think we have a picture of lightning, don't we? There he is. Kaching, right? How many of you have watched a Cars movie? All right. Or the first one that they really put out, their first major one, was a group of toys that came to life when the kids weren't around. Woody and Buzz and Jesse and Prospector and Slinky. I've got four kids. I know all of this, right? Toy Story 3, in fact, caused me to well up a little bit. Few, um, it got dusty in the theater while I was in there. Or these two, Mike and Sully, whose job was to scare kids to power up their world until they realized that laughter was a better force than fear. Or the family drama that they couched as a superhero story of a mom and dad struggling with kids with special abilities. Or the lovable fish who lost his way and the forgetful blue tang that helped him along the way. Or the cranky old man who has a boy scout Help him to fly to an unknown land. Now, I want to tell you something. You talk about a movie that will get your eyes a little misty. The opening scene of Up is one of the most tearful moments in movie history. And even a crazy story about our emotions and how they play in our lives. But the Pixar story began with a couple of characters that you probably have never heard of. It started with the characters Andre and Wally B. How many of you have ever seen these characters at all? A couple of you, all right? I'm a little worried about your Pixar fandom if you've seen these, all right? In 1984, Pixar was a fledgling company inside of Lucas. You know Lucas Films, George Lucas, Star Wars fame. And they were primarily a technical company. They made the digital software for companies to make stories. And they had a big presentation in July that year at a technical conference, and they were going to show the first realized, fully formed world created completely by computer animation. 
And so they had this whole thing worked up, and in the middle of the project, they thought it needed something extra, and they hired this guy from Disney named John Lasseter. And John came in, and they showed him the reel. They were really excited about it, and he said, can I make one suggestion? And so he made a suggestion. He added a character of B. He put a story structure to it. And as a result, they got behind schedule and they didn't finish the project in time for the conference. But they had a spot on the program. And they had to show it. It's kind of like what they told me in seminary. You're going to preach every Sunday whether you're ready or not. I'm not asking how many times you think I'm ready, all right? So they showed it and they told this, they tell the story that in midst of showing it, it was so unfinished that about halfway through it went from this bright, colorful, fully rendered to black and white and wireframe because they couldn't get it fully realized, but they had to show it. So after they showed it, they said we were sitting there cringing as the movie went to black and white and it went to wireframe thinking, All of the people in this room are technical people. They're going to kill us. This might be the end of our company. He said when the lights went out and the people started filing out, instead they received numerous glowing reviews. People said we didn't even realize it went to black and white. We didn't even realize it didn't render completely. We were so involved in the story that we didn't notice the technical deficiencies. Ed Catmull in his book, Creativity Inc., who is the president of Pixar, says, that day we realized that story trumps everything. Story is king. In fact, listen to this quote from his book. He says, for all the care you put into artistry, visual polish frequently doesn't matter if you get the story right. And I believe that we live in a world today that is more ready than it has ever been to hear the truth of the gospel. But the reality that we live in is it will not take the form of just simply telling people what we believe in a very systematic manner It will involve us telling them our story in a way that compels them, wants them to listen. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to look at examples in Scripture and then talk about our own lives where people told a good story and as a result, lives were changed or people heard the gospel or difference was made. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 26. Acts, chapter 26. 26. I heard this week that the book of Acts has been described like a hurricane. Now, I've never been in a hurricane. I've heard from people that have been in a hurricane. We, you remember this, several years ago, eight, nine years ago, we housed people in our gym that were threatened by a hurricane, the one after Katrina, and heard their stories from many of them of how they were in Katrina. And you see the pictures of a hurricane. And the picture of a hurricane is a violent wind that at the center rotates around and throws things to the edges. A a miniature version of a hurricane that we, we, if we ever get a hurricane in Tennessee, a hurricane force, it is a major hurricane that's made it. 
But a smaller example of that, something smaller that we can relate to, is a tornado. It's not as significant. It's not as destructive in mass as a hurricane. It's smaller. But the concept is the same. Swirling winds that at its center seems a little bit calm, but is throwing things all around. Now, here's what they say about the book of Acts. That in the book of Acts, you have at the very beginning, the mighty rushing wind of God entering the room when the apostles and those that are gathered around, the 120 in the room, and the rushing wind. In fact, if you read the original language, the best translation of that is a mighty rushing wind is a hurricane entered the room. And what that then does through the rest of the book of Acts is it throws those people in that room to the ends of the earth. And Paul, from the very beginning, says that what he wants is to make it to Rome. Once he comes to Christ, once he has been infected with the hurricane that has been spreading outward from that moment, Paul comes in in chapter 9 of the book of Acts, and from that moment, he feels like his goal is to get to the fringes, to the edges of that. And this weekend, what I want to do, today what I want to do, is I want to show us how he gets almost there, and then at the end we'll talk about how he makes it there. And my guess is these are some of the neglected parts of the book of Acts for even many of you that love the Bible and love to read it. We don't read Acts 24, 25, 26, 27, 28 very much. We don't talk about it very much. It's basically a recount of what is happening when Luke is telling us how Paul gets on his harrowing journey to Rome. But there are four things that I believe that God wants us to see in this that tell us about the story that you and I have and the importance of sharing it. Acts chapter 26. I want to catch you up before we get into that particular passage with what's going on. Because it's been a lot that's happened here in the last few chapters. And in Acts chapter 20, Paul leaves the Ephesian elders. He got up to Jerusalem to observe Passover like he had planned. Some of the Jewish authorities recognized him. They told the Romans that Paul had come to start a political revolt. Which of course was fake news, right? First century happened too, all right? And when the Romans question him, they realize it's a lie, but they can't figure out what to do. So they send him to the regional governor, a guy named Felix. Felix puts Paul in prison for two years. Two years. Just forgotten about, nothing really going on. I mean, Paul had been persecuted, but imagine, just thrown in a cell for two years. It's during this time that Paul wrote several of the books in your New Testament. Eventually, Felix is succeeded by governor by a guy named Festus. Festus is reviewing his new responsibilities. He discovers Paul's in prison, wants to know why he's there. He calls Paul to stand in front of him. The first thing he says when he comes out is, I appeal to Caesar. Well, there's a legal precedent when you could appeal right to Caesar. If you were a Roman citizen, you could say, I want to talk to Caesar. And the Caesars would listen. Now, here's the thing. This wasn't always the wisest move because the Caesars weren't necessarily portraits of mental stability. In fact, at this time, the Caesar that Paul is appealing to is a guy named Nero. But Paul's been in prison for two years and he's thinking, at least this way I can guarantee I'll get the gospel to Rome and I'll see Caesar. But before they ship Paul off to Caesar, a governor in the land named Herod Agrippa comes to visit Festus and says, 
hey, I heard you got a guy named Paul. Festus says, yep. And Agrippa says, I've heard about this guy. And I want you to see this in the, in the um, book of Acts. This is Acts chapter 25, verse 22. Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow you will hear him, he replied. Here's the first thing about our story, all right, before we even get into Paul telling his story, is that in order for us to be able to tell our story effectively, we have to live in a way that gives credence to the story that we're telling. Another way to say that is, you and I, if we're going to be heard in our community, in our uh, culture, in our country, we need to live provocatively. Now, I want to explain that because there's a lot that could be said about that that would not be what I intend. But what we see here is Agrippa saying to Festus, I've heard so much about this Paul guy, I want to hear it myself. I want to meet him myself. I want to see it myself. What I've heard, it's different. He's different. He's, he's a different kind of dude. He lives differently. He risks differently. He doesn't value the same things we value. He has weird ideas. He's a different kind of guy. I want to see it. I want to witness it. I want to hear it for myself. Why do all the Jews hate this guy? Why is he in prison? I haven't heard anything he's really done wrong. Why can't he go free? Now, what you see in Scripture is people constantly wanted to know what made Paul tick. Paul, why are you in this condition? You don't have to be like this. Just deny what you said. Just change it a little bit. It'd be okay. Why do they hate you so much, Paul? I want to know. We ought to live in such a way that our lives provoke a question from those around us. 50,000 people went downtown last night. About 6 o'clock, I said, hey, Susan, you just want to run downtown real quick, grab a bike to eat something? 50,000 people. Anybody watch the game? A few of you, right? A lot of people at Nashville watched the game. You know what was fun for me was after the game was over when all the commentators were talking, and they were like, well, we've heard about how crazy Nashville has been. We are glad we got to experience it for ourselves. And you had guys that have covered NHL hockey and played it for 50 years saying they've never seen anything like it. We had to experience it for ourselves. Agrippa says, I got to experience Paul for myself. I got to see what he's about. Does your life provoke the kind of questions that Paul's did? I don't get why you live like you do. Why are you so generous? Why do you have such hope in the midst of pain? Why are you so patient and forgiving? Peter talked about this, that we ought to live in a way. This is 1 Peter 3.15 says that we ought to live in our hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, and be ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. He says, listen, you ought to live provocatively in a way that leads people to say, what is going on with you? And can I tell you the reason that baptisms are falling and Christianity is fading and things are happening in our country that we don't understand how it's happening is because for most of the Christians in America, they look like every other person in America. Maybe a tad bit more moral. 
Maybe they give an hour on Sunday morning to do something that the rest aren't doing. They don't sleep in. But for the most part, when you look at them, when you see them, how they're spending their money, how they're prioritizing their time, how they're watching entertainment, how they're living their lives, how they're eating, how they're living, how they're driving, how they're working. If you look at it, for the most part, we're exactly like the culture. And no one's asking us what's different about us because there's nothing different about us. It ought to impact how you work. Paul is talking at times about the fact that our work should be done with such excellence and integrity that people say, why are you doing that? The way we handle disappointment or persecution or pain ought to scream to the people around us that there's something different about it. Our generosity, the way that we give and the way that we live ought to say there's something different about it. About who we are. One of the things I love this, about this week at Vacation Bible School, and if you've been around here for a little while, you, you, you know we do this, but I don't, if you haven't been in this room, you don't understand just the joy that comes from what happens at the time of the offering. New penny wars. And this, uh, over here, we've got a scale, right? And on the scale, we have a blue bucket that stands for the boys, right? And we've got a pink glitter painted bucket this year we have a new and improved upgraded penny war scale over here and every morning kids starting tomorrow morning bring change for the offering and they pour it into their blue or pink bucket and then we weigh it to see who wins for the day and the kids love it by the way, let me show you, uh, Michael Richardson, by the way, uh, some of you may not know Michael. Michael does um, our maintenance around here, and um, he and his family do cleaning around here. Unbelievable uh, asset to our church. He did all the upgrades on the, the, uh, um, the scale this year, and this year, whenever one of them wins, it's going, we've got batteries in there, the lights that you see are going to light up. It'll be awesome, right? Kids are going to love it. Now, I've toyed with the idea, maybe that's what we ought to do for offering in regular service. Right? I don't know how we do that with spouses. I don't know if we put you on two teams, right? And, or your favorite college basketball, football team lets you compete for them, right? But what if our lives were characterized by that kind of love for generosity and giving? How we live ought to provoke a question from those around us. Let's talk about generosity for a minute. Do you know that the average person in churches today in America gives 2.4% to charity? 2.4%. Do you want the average American gives? 2.1%. Do you think that really provokes a question? Most people assume that Christians are just people who are a little bit more moral, not people that live entirely for a different kingdom. Our generosity is supposed to beg the question. Our work ethic is supposed to beg the question. The people out there are supposed to see the way that we handle disappointment, the way that we forgive. We need to live in a way that people say, what's going on with him? So Paul gets his audience before Agrippa. And in chapter 26 of the book of Acts, we see this. Now, um, this is going to, the screen's going to start a little bit down. Okay, 
And so we're, I'm going to read part of this, just read it to you. You can follow along with me. I'm going to start at chapter 26, verse 1. It's not all going to be on the screen. But chapter 26, verse 1 says, Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Now, I love this moment. It's like Paul has been invited into a major leader's room. He's given an opportunity to speak for himself. And most people in that moment will make a defense of their own innocence to get a freedom from them about what's happening. But Paul uses this opportunity to do something else. And what he teaches us in this moment is that when the opportunities present themselves to tell our story, we must seize the opportunities to tell our story. Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. And Paul stretched out his hand and began his defense. Paul was a guy that talked with his hands. And all God's people said, I can't talk without my hands. All right. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially since you're very knowledgeable about all the customs and controversies Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. He said, all of the Jews here know my way of life from my youth, which was spent the beginning among my own people and in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time if they are willing to testify that according to the strictest set of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand on trial because of the hope and what God promised to our ancestors. The promise our 12 tribes hope to reach as they earnestly serve him night and day. King Agrippa, I'm being accused by the Jews because of this hope. He starts to tell his story. He said, listen, I grew up as a little Jewish boy. I knew everything that was supposed to be done. I lived as a Pharisee. And part of our faith is we're looking forward to when the Messiah would come. He says in verse 9 or verse 8, why do any of you consider it incredible what God raises the dead? In fact, I myself was convinced that it was necessary to do many things in opposition to the name of Jesus Christ. And I did this in Jerusalem. I locked up many of the saints in prison. Since I had received authority for that from the chief priest, when they were put on death, I was in agreement against them. And all the synagogues often punished them and tried to make them blaspheme. Since I was terribly enraged in them, I pursued them even to the foreign cities. He says, Agrippa, listen, I'm the least likely person to be here. I was traveling to Damascus under these circumstances with authority to commission from the chief priest, King Agrippa. While on the road at midday, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me and those traveling with me. We all fell to the ground and I heard a voice speaking to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. I asked, who are you, Lord? And the Lord replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Get up, stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you a servant and witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and share among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I did not disobey the heavenly vision. Instead, I preached to those in Damascus first and to those in Jerusalem and to all the region of Judea and to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works worthy of repentance. And for this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and were trying to kill me. I think this is where we start on the screen, John, verse 22. To this very day, I've had help from God 
And I stand and testify to both small and great, saying nothing other than what the prophets and Moses said would take place, that the Messiah must suffer and that as the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to our people and to the Gentiles. As he was saying these things in his defense, Festus exclaimed in a loud voice, Paul, you're nuts. That's the Lyle paraphrase. You're out of your mind. You've studied too much. It's driving you mad. You've gotten in the books too much. You're not having any sense about you. You've gotten it all from a book learned and you're not doing anything wise. Paul replied, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. By the way, that's a really bad name, isn't it? I hope we don't have anybody named Festus in here. But, uh, I mean, the only guys that do that are guys that play for Vanderbilt and stuff. You know, I mean, it's... I could get some money if we put Vanderbilt against Tennessee on Sunday mornings in the offering plate with Kentucky basketball thrown in. We can might... All right. Some ideas here. Now, where was... I was in the Bible somewhere. Here I am. All right. On the contrary, I'm speaking words of truth and good judgment, for the king knows about these matters, and I can speak boldly to him. For I'm convinced that none of these things has escaped his notice, since this was not done in a corner. Saying, listen, this has all been out in the open. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? Can I just say, how bold of a question is that? You see what Paul's doing here? He's just given his testimony, and now he's witnessing to Agrippa and calling him to respond. I know you believe. I know you want to. And Agrippa said to Paul, are you going to persuade me to become a Christian so easily? Verse 29. I wish before God, replied Paul, that whether easily or with difficulty, not only you, but all who listen to me today might become as I am, except for these chains. I want you to think about this for a minute, okay? Paul is given an opportunity to declare before this king that he ought to be set free. He's appealed to Caesar, so he's going to Caesar. But Agrippa could send a notice along and say, listen, this guy has done nothing wrong, let him go. And when he's given the opportunity to speak to one of the most powerful men in that whole area, he simply shares his story. Can I tell you something? There are a lot of people in churches today that say, I don't even know how to share my faith. Like, I wouldn't know if somebody asked me to share, hey, can you tell me about how to accept Jesus? I wouldn't even know how to start. Can I tell you where to start? Your story. That's where Paul started, right? There are a lot of people, and I would be one of them, that consider Paul to be the greatest church planner and evangelist that the world has ever seen. And how does he start with his entire plea to a king. He starts by telling him his story. And here's the thing. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have a story that is just as powerful as Paul's. Remember that Pixar group we talked about before? They said every great story has the same elements. Everybody was living one way when all of a sudden blank changed and everybody lived differently. You know what that's called? That's called a retelling of the gospel. You know what your story is? Well, I don't even know my testimony. 
And sometimes in Baptist churches, we get a little confused about what we mean by testimony because we used to have testimony nights. And testimony nights, a lot of times, were good, but they were also what we just told what God had done for us recently, important part of your testimony. But the most basic form of your testimony is, I was dead in my sins and Jesus saved me. It doesn't matter if you were 8 years old, 48 years old, 12 years old, 36 years old, 78 years old. It doesn't matter. Your story is, I was in sin. Jesus saved me and everything's changed. And if you're a believer, that's your story. Too many of us are afraid to tell the simplest things of what Jesus has done. And we have the opportunity to be a part of telling the story of God's love. Let me just ask you a couple of questions. When's the last time you told someone that was a non-believer the story of how you were saved? When's the last time in a normal conversation you had with someone who you didn't know was a bona fide born again, Jesus-following Christian, did you even bring up the subject of church or God or Jesus? When's the last time you turned a conversation with a friend that you could tell was hurting to a discussion of what Jesus has done for us? The problem for most of us isn't that we don't have a good story. The problem for most of us is we've been unwilling to share it. Can you imagine, back to the Preds for a minute, can you imagine if all this national hype about the Predators game day experience was out there and 1,400 people showed up last night at the game? Empty seats everywhere, sitting on their hands, not doing anything. And sometimes you, sometimes me, sometimes in our lives, people do notice a difference about what's happening. And when they come to us expecting to hear something, we don't give it to them. In a couple of weeks, uh, and I've told this story before, but I just think it's worth repeating. A couple of weeks, we, we've got a group of people going to Brazil. And they're going to be there for an extended period of time. Um, over two and a half weeks, we'll have somebody in Brazil. And we've taken trips to Brazil regularly for the last eight years. But before I came to be your pastor, in fact, the summer before I came to be your pastor, I knew I was coming to be your pastor and still led a trip to Brazil with the church in Ripley and did not tell them until after I got back from Brazil I was coming to be your pastor. But I remember that trip. And so um, I, it's kind of like watching a movie where you know the ending and you're a little emotional about it as you're there. Like I was taking everything in, right? There was a lady on the trip by the name of Miss May, Miss May Dunaway. Miss May Dunaway... Um, was in her late 70s. And she said, I want to go to Brazil. And I said, all right, we'll go. She said, it's okay for old people to go? I said, you're fine. Come on, let's go. She goes, like, I mean, I'm old, Pastor. I said, I'm, it's okay, Miss May, let's go. And so we put Miss May in the eyeglass ministry. In the eyeglass ministry, you, uh, you have to read a card back. People are we're trying on glasses on adults. And as you're reading it, um, at that time we didn't have it. Now when they read it, they read John 3.16. You talk with people about it. But we were having these conversations. And Miss May, the first day we're there, we hadn't been there 20 minutes, ministry starting. I'm sitting in the control center making sure everybody's moving where I need to be and what I might need to go help with. And I see Miss May walking in and she goes, Pastor, i got to have you. i got to have you, Pastor. i got to have you. 
I said, what, what's, what's wrong, Miss May? She goes, somebody just asked me, how did they accept Jesus? And I said, what did you tell them? I said, I'm going to get my pastor. <laughs> and I said, okay, Miss May, let's go. And so we walk back over there. I talk with the guy. We have this conversation. Okay. We walk back. Fifteen minutes later, Miss May walks in. Pastor, I got to have you again. I said, Miss May, what's going on? They asked me how to become a Christian. I said, Miss May, do you know? She goes, well, I think I know. I said, well, I hope you know because I think you've done that. She goes, yeah. I said, just tell them your story. She said, I can do that. I said, you can do that. Miss May walked back. Miss May, she told me afterwards. She said, Pastor, I shared my story more in the first four hours of working than I had in my entire life. And by the end of that week, not two, not four, not eight, but 20-something people came to Christ because Miss May Dunaway just told her story. That same week, I had a guy on the trip um, who worked in government. He was a state rep. And uh, we brought him down on the trip. And as we were there on the trip, he got assigned to construction. Dirk Wally knows all about construction. It's a, it's a fun place. You're loading concrete blocks. His job all week was to build a wall. Okay? This is long before current discussion of wall building. All right? This is a long time ago. He's building a wall around Casa de Apoya, which was the boys' home, because in Brazil, in certain areas, if you don't have a wall around your property, people will come and just start building on it. So he's building this wall around the property, and he worked next to a guy all week. Brazilian. They could not communicate with each other because one spoke Portuguese and one spoke English. The only thing they could say to each other was bom dia, which means good morning, and abrigado, which means thank you. And the other guy could say those two words in English. That's all they could do. All week they worked. About middle part of the week, the guy there, state rep, and I think about it, he, he's actually running for governor in the next cycle. Okay, He's big wig in state legislature and he's building a concrete wall and he came to about middle of the week and i said so you doing already he goes honestly this isn't what i thought i'd be doing end of the week we have a service i preach and as i'm preaching i notice he's sitting by the guy that he's worked with all week because we kind of encourage make sure you sit with people um brazilian and as i give the invitation through the interpreter the, the, the altar starts filling. I mean, in Brazil, it's not like America. When you preach and you call for people to respond in Brazil, people respond. Okay? And so they're, they're filling it and things are going. And I'm excited. And I look up and I see the guy he's been working with all week stand up and walk down front. And then I see my friend, tears in his eyes. And he says, I realize I was here for him the guy had asked him the day before in their devotional time with an interpreter to tell his story and his story impacted that guy for eternity there is nothing more powerful than your story they can debate you all day long about the veracity of the claims of Jesus, about what theologians have argued about for centuries. But if your life has been changed by Jesus Christ, they cannot argue about your personal experience. 
And I'm not talking about some relative experience without grounded in absolute truth. What I'm talking about is when your life has been transformed by Jesus, they cannot deny that your life has been transformed by Jesus. And so you just tell your story. Paul knew Agrippa, knew all of the history. He knew all of the prophets. He could have started with Isaiah and talked about the suffering servant. And he could have talked about the prophecies. And he could have talked about Bethlehem. And he could have talked about not without a bone being broken. He could have talked about he was unrecognizable. He could have talked about all that. But instead of theologically debating Agrippa, he tells him his story. I believe in theological debate. I've been to school a long time. Done lots of theological debates, but nothing ever goes over when I was nine years old. Jesus Christ miraculously saved me from my sin. We need to seize the opportunities when they present themselves. Thirdly, this is real brief, we'll do this. We gotta trust God. I love how he ends this. The guy says, are you trying to convince me? Do you think it's that easy to convince me to be a Christian? And he says, I don't care if it's easy or hard. My prayer is that you'll become a Christian. But he trusts God. You know what your job is in this whole witnessing, telling your story thing? It is simply to tell your story and tell the story of God and then leave God to do the rest. If you look to this as an evangelism encounter, there is no decision that is made. And yet it is a successful evangelism encounter because the gospel of Jesus Christ has been shared with someone that needs to hear it. And so the point of all of this and what we want us to understand is that in order to be able to tell your story, in order to be able to live in this way that's provocative, in order to be able to trust God, you have to live the story of your life. You have to live your story. Paul was a man who was radically transformed by the grace of Jesus Christ. He lived it every day. So when an opportunity presented itself before Agrippa, he just shared it. One of the things I love about the book of Acts is that it ends in a cliffhanger. Y'all remember good cliffhangers, right? Like, who shot J.R., right? Okay. Like Dukes of Hazard every week. All right? I hear you, man. You know, like the, the General Lee is over an unjumpable jump. Right? And they pause it midair. Binge watching has taken away cliffhangers. I don't watch a show till they're eight or nine banks, so I don't have to wait to see what happens to people. Book of Acts ends with a cliffhanger. If you're in Acts 26, just turn over two chapters. Acts 28 is the end of it. I want you to see the last couple of verses. Then we're going to talk about a couple of things and we'll be done. Paul stayed. He gets to Rome. Paul stayed two whole years in his own rented house and he welcomed all who visited, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Why is Paul in Rome? What, what's he going to Rome for? What, how did he get there? He did what? He appealed to Caesar. Acts never tells us what happens. It's one of the greatest cliffhangers in history. Now, we know from history some of the things that happens, but one of the things that I want to do when I get to heaven, I believe they're going to have all kinds of seminars up there, and I think they're going to be with Paul what happened after Acts 28. I want to know, Paul. I've been waiting for 
however long it is before the Lord calls me home, right? The book's a cliffhanger. You aren't told what happens to Paul in his dreams. But here's the reason. You know why I think they did that? It's because this book is not about Paul and his dreams. It's about the Spirit and the Gospel. We know that eventually Paul was released, went to Spain, was rearrested, beheaded by Nero. Why not record all that? It's the way of Luke saying that in Nero's of the world, you can kill and imprison Paul, but you can't stop the gospel. And here we are 2,000 years later. And I believe that God has planted us in Goodlettsville, Tennessee, in this area for a special time. I don't know whether you realize this or not, and you do if you drive on the roads. The world is coming to Nashville. And what better place to be to proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ than the it city in America? And I know we're in Goodlettsville. We're on the edge. But we're close enough people to drive and pay less for a hotel room. I know that. And so we're going to live our story. Live your story in inviting people to come to Jesus and to come to church and your neighbors and friends. Just in our neighborhood, I was having a discussion the other day with somebody. In our neighborhood, we see a changing demographic of what our neighborhood has become. When we moved in, on both sides of us were elderly couples. lady on one side has moved out. She's in assisted living. And in has moved a couple that's like 20 years younger than us. We're the elderly couple to them, right? The lady next to us is still living there, but she is in very feeble health and her husband has passed away. And the people that have moved in around us, none of them have a church affiliation. We talk to them, we invite them, we try to strike up a conversation. It's not easy, but whether it's easy or it's hard, it's our job to tell. Live sin in the way... Tell your story in the way that you volunteer, in the way that you give, and in the way that you live. What's your story? You see, you can mess up a whole lot in life, but if your story is right, it still carries the impact. And the question I want to leave you with today is, are you sharing your story? There's a famous quote from a guy named St. Francis of Assisi, which, by the way, it has never been proved, and it's probably not true that he ever said it, but it's been attributed to him about 400 years, so we'll just go with it. And he says, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. Can I tell you something? It's always necessary. If we could just live our ways to people being saved, that'd be so much better for many of us. But the truth is, they have to know the reason for the hope that is within. And so you always have to use words. Are you telling a good story? Let's pray together.